in Titus 1.12, uh, Paul talking to Titus, he says, one of, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And I've always been fascinated by that because I'm like, okay, I like that because as a pastor, as a preacher, someone that communicates a lot, I like thinking about what, what, are, what are our current poets, what are poets around us saying, what are, what are the kind of the thought leaders in our society saying, so I do research, I think about that. But then beyond acknowledging that, enjoying that, I go to just the, the clear, fa- like, man, what, what happened to this poet? What did they do to him? Because <laughs> that's what he says about his own people, like, they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. My people. I'm like, what, what is, is he enjoying? Is he reveling or is he just mocking them? But I'm going to just pivot and use that idea. So one of America's poets says, I got to tell myself another lie because that's what helps to get me by because I'm in hell. I got to tell myself another lie because that's what helps to get me by because I'm in hell. And you're like, Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost. It sounds a little bit more Edgar Allan Poe, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. And to the two of you that are already grabbing your phone to Google it, just be patient, okay? (laughs) Just wait. Be here. But I I think that that may be, it's about relationships, the song. I think that can be a good, accurate picture of how Americans typically deal with relationships, to deal with how they're going to get by, tell themselves another lie so that they can keep going. And in this, this story with Gideon, there's so much lies and fear, fear and lies. Now, after the heroic women of chapters four and five and the triumphant song of Deborah, we should have some high expectations of like, man, let's keep going. But Gideon's story is all about the canonization of Israel. At the beginning of the story starts with there's this clan idolatry at Orpha. At the end of the story is the whole country is participating in this idolatry at Orpha. The nations don't see the glory of God through Israel and then choose to worship God. Actually, the Israelites are are allured by the nations and the gods of the nations, and so they look like the nations. They fail to drive out the false gods and the peoples of the land, and now they, they worship God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and the gods of the nation. That, that's a very distinct point of Judges is that sometimes in our mind we think it's either or, it's one or this one. Like I, uh, some, of, some people I know just, they default to Christian. Why? Because anytime I talk about religion, like, well, there's two options, Muhammad or this. And like, I'm not, I'm not with Muhammad. Like, okay, so that makes you a Christian? That's it? That's what it is, the default? By, are you just thinking that? The distinct point here is that you can say that you worship God and worship God the God of the Bible, and worship false gods simultaneously. That's called syncretism. What's wild is that they tell stories of Yahweh's past miraculous acts, but also build a pole in their backyard worshiping Asherah, Bell's companion. It's, it's like worshiping God and worshiping sex 
and having a place in your house for, for pornography. That's what's happening here. It's like worshiping God and worshiping comfort and having your house, your family, believe lies because no one has the spine to stand for the truth. That, that, that's the imagery painted here. Gideon, he, in this culture, he's still living with his, with his dad. He's on this property. If it, how big it is, how, but he's there. And this Asher pulls in the backyard while they also talk about how God did miraculous acts in Egypt. So immediately, this story gets personal. Again, pulls us in and makes us think and question, reflect. Does your family look like Jesus, full of grace and truth, or does your family look like the families around you? The habits, the practices, the tone, the type of correction. But I'm not picking on you, I'm picking on all of us, because think about our church. Does our church look like the Bible? Does it look like Jesus' people, or does it look like the peoples around us? Judges 6, first one, we're covering the whole chapter, we got to get going, you ready, Judges 6, if you don't have a Bible, there's one around you, grab one, I want you to see it, we're walking through the story, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, evil, what does that mean, that means again, worship other gods, follow other gods, so the Lord handed them over to Midian, seven years, and they oppressed Israel, I want to give you some reference. Think about seven years of oppression. Think about COVID. Think about the, the real like limits of that. I talked about to you last time uh, about how they were, uh, the roads were deserted. There was ghost villages. That's what that oppression looked like then. Now, now think about the seven years. You know, for some of us that lived in Texas, we lasted like two months, you know, for, for, for the real like stint, you know, it was like two months in Texas. I don't know where, maybe you lived somewhere else during that time. If you're watching online, you may still be there. Um, I'm sorry <laughs> that you live there. Because of Midian, <laughs> double down. No one outside of Texas watches this. Because of Midian, <laughs> you don't even watch it when you're not here, okay? <laughs> All, right. All right, now I got a real person. There we go. Are you still with me? We've got a lot to get through. Verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil inside the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, strongholds. Whenever, whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey, meaning their bank, they, they completely took all of their bank, all their money, their whole economy. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now again, this is no sign of genuine repentance. All we hear is the report of they cry out. Now in an Old Testament narrative, Here's, here's what we should know. 
When you're reading Old Testament narrative, often the narrator doesn't tell you why things are happening or what's going on in the motivations. You have to try to make sense of it based upon the character's actions and words. That's, what, that's how they get their point across. So what does the character say? How does the ca- character respond? What does the character report? But here there's nothing. And, and, and what you see is, this is again just the repeated cry, cry, cry with no genuine turning. Verse 7, the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian. The Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in, but you did not obey me. So now this time they cry out, and rather than sending a deliverer immediately, God sends a prophet. God wants to speak to his people. God wants to remind his people. God wants to preach to his people to say, you, you've forgotten who I am, so you feared other gods. I want to remind you. You feared, you didn't trust me, you don't trust my power, my track record, you didn't obey. Again, though, this is not a complete forsaking for them of God and replacing him with the God of the Amorites. This is, they continued in the traditions of the God of the Bible and then added the worship of the Amorites to it. So a fair question would be for our own hearts, our own families, our own church, is if you're worshiping God, what else are you worshiping? If you're worshiping God, is there anything else where it's Jesus plus this, Jesus plus this, plus this, plus this? And if like, I need help, I don't, I, maybe. I feel like there's something going on in me, but I, I don't really know how to understand what's going on in me, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I, what, what my, where my affections are going. Two great questions to identify idols in your heart. What makes me angry? What makes me fearful? Here with Gideon, he is going to show us the fearful piece. And so I want you to think about it with Gideon and for yourself. If it's fearful, thinking about that fear, why does it make you fearful? What can't you lose in that picture? What must you have to feel okay? And the thought of not having that makes you terrified. Why? That's the sussing out of what is happening in our hearts. 
merely beyond what we profess, remember, and proclaim about what God has done in the past, but actually what we're functionally believing and living in in the current. Because other gods, sorry, other gods are okay with polygamy. God is monogamous. Other gods do not care how many other lovers you have, as long as they're a part of it. God really cares. Why, why do you think marriage is the way it is? Because the one who created marriage created out of his own imagination, out of what? His love, his affection, his desires. He's monogamous. So he, he's not okay. Asherah, Bell, the, the Amorites, you can throw them all in there. They don't care. But God is not okay with this. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak that was, uh, that was in Orpha, which belonged to Joash. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Didn't I tell you some fear? Uh, it, it, it maybe helped to understand what's happening. He, he's supposed to be threshing this wheat. The most optimal positions, maybe out on a hill with a little bit of covering. Uh, you beat the stalks, then you throw it up in the air, and the wind just blows it through. Right? He's hiding. Where is he hiding? In a wine press. Think more of a dungeon the worst conditions. Why? Because he's terrified of the Midianites. So it doesn't explain, but I don't know how he's doing this, honestly. I, I don't know. Like, just a little bit at a time. Like, wait, he's so scared. He's hiding in a dungeon, trying to separate the wheat with no wind. Then the angel Lord appeared to him, verse 12, and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. <laughs> you should laugh. It's surprising, at the least. At the least. I got, the Lord had to come to him and be like, hey, 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 stop blowing that, that wheat. Stop. Valiant warrior, you, you man, hiding, terrified, shaking. Valiant warrior, it's surprising. But the reality is, what God calls a person, that person is. So, Gideon is terrified in a wine press right now. Gideon won't be there forever. Do you know what I'm saying? That God has the power to really do the things that we try to say we do, like speak it into existence. He actually does it. He's like, oh, you're a terrified person hiding you're a valiant warrior Gideon that's who you are that's where I'm taking you that's who I'm making you verse 13 Gideon said to him please my lord if the lord is with us why has all this happened and where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about they said hasn't the lord brought us out of Egypt 
But now the Lord has abandoned us, hand us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. Now that why, I think that's a great question. He, he senses, okay, this guy has told me the Lord's with me, so he acknowledges him. He doesn't understand who this person is yet. But he's told me that the Lord is with me. I'm a valiant warrior. Then I'm going to ask him, why has the Lord let this all happen? You get, you, you get that question. That, that, that's our reaction most often to suffering is why, Lord, would you let this happen? Where are you? I've heard of things in the past, but this is the current. This is where we're at. You seem absent. But the answer Gideon doesn't consider, and we should always ask or think about, is, is in this, is there any part of this that's me? Could this, in any part, be from my disobedience, from my lack of love for God? Gideon blames God rather than considering if he and the nation is to blame. Gideon is an example of those of us who, who know what God has done in the past, who believe the creed, but find it contradicted by our present reality. The current Midianite oppression overshadows God's deliverance in the past in Gideon's mind. That what's nearer to you, what's closer, what's bigger in your eyes, Is that idol or that fear where then you can no longer see truly who the Lord is because it is eclipsed, he is eclipsed by your present troubles, addictions, frustrations, pressures. But I also resonate with Gideon on this of like that question of why is our why is our nation the way that it is? Like I hear some of you guys asking that question about our country. Like why has this all happened? Didn't God seem to take care of and provide for America? How is our country in such chaos and confusion? I think that's a fair question. But idolatry is the answer. But more than the country, what about the American church? That's the thought. Before we work to cultivate our society, we must work in our heart. So unlike Gideon, unlike Gideon, stop and reflect on your guilt. And don't just cry out the Lord because your circumstances are terrible and you want him to free you from your, your circumstances or even the consequences of what you've done. Not crying out to him for just reprieve, but actually crying out to him in repentance where you hate the sin, not just the consequences of it. 
stop and reflect and not immediately throw blame other places, but to see where it lays on us. All right, so I told you about the fear, but here comes some lies. Verse 15, Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's family. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. This whole country, you'll hit them one time, and they'll all fall once. That's what it's going to be like. So God tells him what he's going to do, and then he's essentially saying, how? How? Look at me. Weak tribe, the baby of the family, how? Me? Fear and lies so often work together. That you're fearful of this, and so you'll tell yourself a lie to get by, to get through it, to get around it. How do you view yourself? Maybe like Gideon, weak, small, young. Others of you, unloved, dirty. View yourself as a failure, enslaved. God answers, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring, I'm sorry, I jumped. This is, this is, this is God speaking to Moses. This is Exodus 12. It was showed on the screen. Because this is the same thing that God does with Gideon. He does with Moses. Where Gideon's essentially this new Moses figure in Judges. God answers him to Moses, Exodus I will certainly be, be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and you say to them, and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So here and in and Gideon, when God calls you, God has you. When God calls you, he's with you. When he calls you to what he's calling you to in action or in your life, he is taking you there. He is no absentee father that says, go charge at the world. I'm going to hang back. When he has, when he calls you, he has you. Think of 1 John 3. He speaks it into existence. He calls you children, and so you are. He has you. Gideon, he has you. Moses, he has you. Joe, he has you. Amanda, he has you. And then Gideon said to him in verse 17, If I have found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half 
bushel of flour. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. Pause for a second. The angel of the Lord here, I'm going to make this argument. The angel of the Lord here and in other parts of the Old Testament, most likely Jesus. Most likely. Speaks in first person, alternates as Yahweh's messenger and Yahweh himself. It's the invisible God made visible to reveal God's glory and to receive the sacrifice. Let's keep going. The angel of God said to him, take the meat with the unleavened bread, put it on the stone and pour the broth on it. So he did that. The angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon realized that he was an angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no, Lord God, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So what's happening? Well, when, when a deity consumes the meal that a worshiper has presented to that, that, that shows that person that they have found favor in that deity's sight. So this is what's happening. You, Gideon has offered a young bull, a young goat. He's offered all this. This is clearly offering a sacrifice. It's consumed. Gideon should interpret it. It says, I found favor in, the, in, in Yahweh's sight. But he doesn't interpret it this way. He must know or remember Exodus 33 that says, no man can see the Lord's face and live. That Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, that's sovereign Lord, sovereign God, I'm going to die. Verse 23, but the Lord said to him, peace to you. Don't be afraid for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. It is still an Orpha of the Bezerites today. So from Exodus to now, we still have that same question. How can a holy, good, loving God dwell with a rebellious people? How can there be peace between the two? How can they live in such a relationship where there's peace? How can there be peace when God is their covenant partner and Israel adopts other gods? How can there be peace when there's a monogamous husband and, and a polyamorous wife? How is there peace? The hints are there. It makes it clear when we get to the bull next, but Jesus is the sacrifice that removed him from the earth. But raises from the grave and comes back and tells his disciples, peace to you. I will be with you forever. Don't be afraid. Keeps going, verse 25. On that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull. That's debatable. I'll get to it. Seven years old. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took 10 of his male servants that did as the Lord had told him. I'm like, yeah. That's how I feel. I'm like, yeah, Gideon. 
Finally, let's go. But because he was too, ah, <laughs> right? But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city do it in the daytime, he did it at night. That, that's a rare time where the narrator interjects the motivation of the character and says, this isn't quick obedience, this is fearful obedience. I'm going to do it under night. I'm scared. Gideon and his family are aware of the traditions of Yahweh, but in practice, they're bellists. All right, think about you, us. Christians can believe in God, but in practice, be secular agnostics. Where God is absent, if real, what really matters is what I can see in the now. What is real is what I feel. My desires deserve to be performed for an audience, and everyone should receive me fully. Michael Wilcock in his commentary on Judges says this. It's lengthy, but he says, The gods have not changed, for human nature has not changed. And these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. What does it want? If it is modest, it wants security and comfort and reasonable enjoyment. Don't keep reading. What does it want if it is modest? It's security and comfort and reasonable joy. If ambitious, what does it want? Power and wealth and unbridled self-indulgence. In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires, whether political programs, economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle options, entertainment programs, all having one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves, yet at the same time, they appear amenable to our manipulating them so we can get what we want without losing our independence. Here's the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our hearts. So like Moses circumcising his son before delivering Israel, Gideon is to cut out the apostasy in his own family first before he goes on God's mission. Let's take care of your family first. And God is pointing to the real problem that the real problem isn't the Midianite oppression but their spiritual idolatry. That their false worship is more serious than the Midianites' oppression. Now, the original language is a little obscure about the bulls. And I wouldn't usually get into some things that are this small, but I think it's important because of what I think. I think it's one bull here. The first literally means the bull of the bullock. They translate it sometimes as first bull. The second one can be translated second bull, can also be translated as highly exalted. The exalted bull. So you've got the bull of the bullock, the exalted bull, the prize bull, seven years old, whole. Why I think that's important. Worthy to be sacrificed to God. And so you have this one bull, I believe that's the prize bull, that is used to tear down the idols of the family and then is sacrificed on the altar 
as a burnt offering saying, our devotion is to you, Lord. Holy. We're going to burn up like, uh, we're going to burn up in desire for you. Like this offering is being burnt up. Why do I think it's beautiful? Why, why I make the sermon? Because Jesus is the exalted sacrifice who offered himself on the cross to pay for idolatry, meaning not only simultaneously yanks down the poles, destroys the idols, but also gives us peace with the Lord. That's how there can be peace. That's how a monogamous husband continues to deal with be patient with, endure with a polygamous, polyamorous, I can throw a few in there, wife. That Jesus offered himself as the, the bull par excellence. Seven years whole. The, the Bible number of perfection, wholeness, with lies and fear in light of the bull of bulls being sacrificed for you. It means the lies told to you, the lies told about you, the lies you've received and believed aren't what define you. Jesus, the way, the life, and the truth is what defines you. You are loved. You're not dirty, but clean. You're not a failure, but more than a conqueror. You're not enslaved, but free. And those things that are kind of half-truths, I'll fill it out. You are weak, but you're strong. In God's grace, you're strong. You're small, maybe, but you're spirit-empowered. You're young, but because <laughs> you've been handed the good news of Jesus, your wise. And so the lies attached to these idols need to die, need to be torn down. This is where we understand also judges in light of the cross and where we live today and we don't look around and think, oh, my enemy is that political party. What am I going to do? I'm going to pull out a left-handed stud Ehud move. Like, is that what I'm going to do? I'm going to shamgar it. You know, you have to think about your enemies. And one of the greatest weapons of your greatest enemy is lies to you. And then Paul comes and tells us, you tear down these false I ideologies, you capture all of these lies by the prize bull Christ himself. That if you're unsure if it's lie or true. You match it up with Jesus, and if it fails, throw it aside.
And if it's fear with this, and it's fear of losing, fear of not having what you have, what you, what you think you need, what you must have, it's in really fear of losing a God, and the truth is Jesus is better than whatever God that you're so terrified of letting go. Here's another warning. It's, it's better for you to let it go to the Lord than him to rip it out of your hands. Verse 28, when the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar torn down, the Asherah pole beside it cut down, the second bull offered up on the altar that had been built. They said to each other, who did this? After they made a thorough investigation, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Thorough investigation. I, it doesn't sound like they asked why. I wish they would have asked why. Why did you do this? Not just who did. Then the many, men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he tore down Bell's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. What? Idolatry turns the world upside down. They should die for bowing down to Asherah. But they're saying he should die for tearing down Asherah. Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead Bell's case for him? Would you save him? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. Uh, I, I, don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's him thinking about Deuteronomy 3. I think that's vengeance. I think that's Papa Bear coming out. He's like, oh, you're going to take it in your own hands, meaning you're going to kill my son. I'm going to kill you by morning. That's how this is going to go. That day, Gideon was called Jereb. I can't pronounce it. Since Joash said, let Bel contend with him because he tore down his altar. Where's Bel's prophet is what he says, really. Where's Bel's spirit? Let Bel save himself. But again, this is upside down because the idolaters are here are having to save their God rather than the God of the Bible who saves his people. They're having to defend him, save him, save his reputation. But what's about to happen is God is going to save his people. All the Menites, Malachites, people of the east gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, camped in the Jezreel Valley. The spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon and he blew the ram's horn and the Bezerites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulun, and Natali who also came to meet him. The spirit of God envelops him. That literally means close him. Close him. And I'm going to stop here for time. We'll come back to fleece next week. I want you to think about this. The biggest tool that God has given you in your tool belt for lies is the truth. And the biggest tool that God has given you for fear is himself, his presence. He clothes you with his spirit in perpetuity. This garment will not come off. The spirit of God, if you're in Christ, has been put on you by the Father and the the seriousness of it 
is when Jesus says, no one can pluck you from the Father's hand. Another way I could say it with here is no one can take that garment off you. And so there's these lies that Jesus is the truth, but then you've got this fear and Jesus has provided his presence. I'll be with you to the end of the age forever. Ascends to the right hand of the Father, sends you his spirit to clothe you. But I'll come back to the syncretism and just ask you again the idea of if I am worshiping God, maybe you're not a Christian and you're just worshiping everything. You don't feel like nothing because you don't think about it in those terms, but you give yourself over to a lot of things. I'm going to tell you Jesus is better. And to you Christians, I'm going to tell you the same thing. Jesus is better. That if you are worshiping God, maybe this story would prompt you to ask yourself, is there anything else I'm worshiping alongside him? God is monogamous. God will have no rivals. He wants your whole heart, your whole life. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your, your grace to us, that your force and with us would hinder those that are even afraid to come to you because they're fearful of what you might say to them. Or maybe those that are so confused by lies that they don't even know where to start. Lord, I, I ask ask that you would speak to us and show us the sacrifice and by your spirit would you empower us to, to put these lies to death, to put this fear away to treasure you and delight in you in Christ's name, amen.